HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly, a show that brings you great meals, big ideas, and really smart women. Today, my Food Hall of Fame guest is a woman whose childhood in India shaped her life. Goat herders, homesteaders, farmers, they're the people who are her favorite teachers. They showed her how to learn through living. Today, she's a satellite farmer and also provides incredible produce to restaurants. We'll hear more about that in a moment, but first, I want to tell you about an incredible meal that I ate this week. I went to Chicago for the James Beard Awards, and all anyone was talking about was a restaurant called Oriole. It seemed like everyone was going there, which is technically impossible since it's a 28-seat restaurant, but that's where the buzz was. That's where I went. The chefs, Noah Sandoval and Jeannie Kwan, are creative and they're confident. Eating at Oriole is kind of like getting on a private jet with co-pilots who have hijacked the flight plan and take you all over to their favorite destinations, to cities and towns, the flavors from Japan, New Orleans, France, all bumping across the menu but maybe bumping's really the wrong word because it's gliding. It's completely delicious. My favorite dish was a thumb-sized piece of a Japanese A5 Wagyu with a little piece of charred gem lettuce with furitake and sesame leaf. It was like taking the idea from a steakhouse of steak and a salad and putting it through a modernist mega machine so it comes out this 
perfectly pink, juicy, fatty piece of meat and a, a charred, lettuce <laughs> accompaniment. You know, like a great burger with lettuce on top uh, with a little bit of a Japanese influence. So if you're in Chicago, do like all of those chefs and journalists that I was hanging out with and me and check out Oriole. I want to know what you, what you think. It was 17 courses and a lot of brilliance. Now, the chefs have gotten a huge amount of attention. They won the Best New Restaurant from Chicago Magazine. Noah was named Chef of the Year from the Chicago Tribune. And Food and Wine Magazine, my old stomping grounds, named Noah Sandoval Best New Chef. And that is just in the last couple of months. So in many ways, this reflects the fantastic quality of the menu But it also could say something about the narrow lens of media. To have everybody line up and fall in love with one chef in a city that has so many incredible chefs. So uh, today there is going to be another look at uh, what one could call media myopia. On the line I have Clarissa Way. Clarissa, you wrote an incredible piece for Munchies about the struggle of writing about Chinese food as a Chinese person, which on the face of it seems a little surprising. For the Speaking Broadly listeners, can you just summarize the the point of your piece? Yeah, um, thanks for having me on. Um, The point is that um, as a person who's ethnically Chinese writing about Chinese food, it's hard to find among on mainstream media on pieces that speak about Chinese food um, reflect perspectives that are reflected by people of color or people um, who are from that culture. So especially as a Chinese person, it was just really hard finding stories that reflected my own personal experiences when it came to pieces that talked about Chinese food. And it seems like people were approaching the cuisine from an outsider's perspective. Um, which I understand given people's background. Um, But for me, it was that there are people here who speak Chinese who have a tie to the culture. Why aren't more of these voices out there? I thought one of the things you said that was really fascinating was that uh, only certain dishes like noodles and dumplings and kebabs and rice bowls have been normalized. Um, Mm -hmm. And the majority are still stigmatized because, as you said, white people haven't decided that they like them yet. So I'd love to take this opportunity to have you give voice to some of the things that you really love and that you feel like have been ignored and that we really need to know more about. Yeah, um, so fermented tofu is something I talked about in that piece um, and something that I've always tried to um, give more an opportunity to, um, but I found that people don't really want to talk about it because if you Google it quickly online, stinky tofu, fermented tofu, you'll see a lot of words that, um, articles that alluded to, it smells like a dead corpse, it's like rotting feet, and obviously if you describe it with those terms... That's not sounding good right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, people aren't going to be curious about it. Um, But I spent a lot of time in China and interviewed a lot of people who made these things. And it's very similar to cheese. And there's different varieties depending on where you go in China. So um, in Taiwan, they like to ferment it with amaranth, um, which gives it a very distinct um, taste, kind of salty, 
um, very aromatic, um, has that umami taste, very um, distinct. In Anhui province, um, in sort of the middle of China, they just kind of leave it out there until hair, little hairs grow on it. And, oh my gosh. Um, yeah, <laughs> and it's a type of mold, but it um, turns it into a texture that's akin to blue cheese. Um, and again, this is what I find surprising is that this is entirely vegan. It's tofu, it's soy, um, and it's we're creating textures that are similar to cheese. Yet people are scared to try this. So, so do you, are there? Um, that's have, fascinating to me. Have you had it served at a restaurant in America where you think they've done a good job with it? Yeah, in Los Angeles, there are a lot of renditions of it. Um, most of it is the Taiwanese version, just because there's a um, high population of Taiwanese Americans. Um, but I actually went to a stinky tofu factory here in Los Angeles, and they just said, um, because of health regulations here, and just because inspectors don't know how to deal with this food, they can only ferment it for three days and no longer. Um, and that just was an arbitrary, it seemed, um, timeline that these people gave them because people here find it so weird that people are fermenting tofu that there's no real regulation of how long you can let it ferment. That's, that's interesting because, of course, fermentation is having such a huge moment right now. So people are fermenting everything. So why not tofu? Yeah. But do you exactly. feel like yeah. do you feel that if um, Americans, but you know, were served this? And it was normalized. People said, you know, this is a lot like blue cheese and we're going to serve it with, you know, rice and uh, you're going to love it. Do you think that it is something that an, uh, one could acquire a palate for? Definitely. Um, the hairy tofu tastes exactly like blue cheese in terms of the texture. Um, Ghee tofu, it's more similar to natto, which is I know is getting a lot more pressed these days. Um, and I get it. It's an acquired taste, but... I think people would love it. I mean, growing up, people hated kimchi or fermented Chinese pickles. And I remember taking that to school and people would make fun of me, but now people love it. So <laughs> I don't know people are very finicky and I, I can never tell, but I think it's something that people can really grab onto for sure. Okay. We'll it's keep, just, we'll keep our yeah. eye out for that. And then I wanted to talk a little bit about um, hand pulled noodles because mm-hmm. I, it's something that people don't give a lot of thought to. And I just love the way you compared it uh, to pasta. Tell yeah. me about hand, hand pulled noodles and, and the, their value. Yeah, so I went to a beef noodle soup school in the north of China, and the students there had to pull noodles 100 times each day um, just to get the texture right. And they didn't really give the students recipe. It was all about feeling it um, and feeling the texture and adding the right ingredients to create that elasticity. And they have to go to school for about a month before they can, you know, be hired at a restaurant to pull noodles. Um, and I remember at that moment a student came up to me and asked me how bowl, how much a bowl of pasta costs in the United States and I responded you know um, up to twenty dollars these days um, and he was shocked everyone just kind of gathered around in shock <laughs> told me that in China a bowl of hand-pulled noodles costs less than a dollar USD um, and why are people paying twenty dollars for pasta when most people just you know put it through a pasta roller and um, and or, I get it. There's a lot of skill that goes through pasta, definitely. But these people express that they felt that their noodles were being undervalued compared and just the sheer amount of skill and effort that went into what they were creating. And no one really talks about that at all. 
Well, I love watching noodles being hand-pulled, and it's something that you can do in a variety of uh, restaurants. And so not only are you eating great noodles, but th- you get a great show. And we, we know how food can be entertainment, and hand-pulled noodles seems like it's perfect for that because it's both delicious and entertaining. Well, yeah. um, Clarissa, thank you so much for joining us. I can't wait to hear more of your stories and to have you bring out more foods like fermented tofu that we all need to learn about. Because as you say, kimchi, not so long ago, was that that stinky, stinky thing that people would make you go move to another table to eat. And mm-hmm. as fermentation um, and all things Asian grows in po- popularity, um, I want to hear more from you. So thanks so much for joining me in Let's stay in touch. Yeah, thanks for having me. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to be back with my Food Hall of Fame guest of the day, Farah Masani. She owns Farah's Farm, which is actually a collection of of satellite farms. Um, She grows food for restaurants, and she also uses a farm as a way to help with mental health. We'll be right back. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly. I am very excited to be here today with Farah Masani from Farah Farms, and also she is the Culinary Purchasing Director at Barteca Restaurants. Barteca has 28 restaurants uh, all around the country, and Farah is providing produce for them. It's a fantastic model. You, Farah, were born in India, and I'd I'd love to know how your childhood set the stage for what you're doing today. Hi, thanks for having me here. This is such a great place to be, and um, I'm clearly far, far away from where I grew up. I grew up in Bombay, which is, um, you know, a big city. Lots of people, 21 million people, um, no farmland in sight. However, I spent a lot of time in the countryside of um, India, whether it was the Himalayas um, or the fields um, surrounding the coastline. Um, While my family was there for business or for holiday, I found myself wandering all over um, the farmlands because that's where um, I was happy, that's where I found peace, and that's where I found a lot of humility in the people and in the surroundings. Um, I gravitated towards the people who were a wealth of knowledge, 
who taught me um, the value of hard work, the value of food, the value of getting dirty, um, which was, you know, growing up in the city, you're like, no, no. <laughs> um, you know, my nanny would chase me and come back. Girls from our families don't run with these kind of people. And to me, that was alarming. I'm like, what do you mean these kind of people? We're all people. And so very quickly, at a very young age, I was paying attention to the things that were allowed to do and the things that we weren't allowed to do. And it made no sense. While I respect cultural traditions and, and rituals and, and things that are passed on from generation to generation, it has to make sense. It has to be logical. Um, there has to be a reason why things are done. And if you do things without reason then you're not doing the right thing, in my opinion. Or you, you just had a very strong moral compass, I guess, from a, a very young age. A, a, a sense of what, uh, what was important to you versus what was important to your family. Yes, and that's a good way to put it. And what was important to me was equality and fairness. And that, again, from a very young age, being a girl child, growing up even in, you know, in, in an affluent family and in an affluent city in India is th the difference between the boy and the girl is, is in your face 24-7. And my brother had privileges. I didn't. And I didn't understand that. And I wasn't having it. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> and there was, it was always a fight. It was always a struggle. At home, it was always do this, don't do this. You're allowed to do this. You may not do this. You're a girl. And running away, whether it was in the fields or whether it was in the mountains, was the best relief ever. And I, you then took this notion of running away and really ran with it because you left India and you came to the, you came to the States. I did. I left and I, uh, by, way, by the long way, I stopped over in several different places and ended up in Texas. <laughs> I followed the love of my life and it was such a great feeling to, <laughs> to accomplish something, to follow the person you've been in love with for so long and you fought to stay with that you haven't been allowed to be with because, again, you know, they're not the right kind of person. Um, and I came to Texas for an education. He was at the University of Texas. And here I came, and I was so happy and so proud. And I landed in Austin, which I love, 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 love as a city to date. Um, but I was, I was appalled. I was in the the world's best country, in the world's you know nicest city, getting a great education. But I was eating rubbish. Um, Tell us about when you first went to an American supermarket. So I I I didn't have a car, and my good friend at the time took me in her car to go grocery shopping, and we landed upon. Um, H-E-B, this huge grocery store that takes, you know, a, a Costco or whatever and puts it to shame. It's so huge and fluorescent lights and walking through these aisles of packaged goods. And, you know, I'd been exposed to the Western world, but here I was actually trying to find food. I wanted bread. I wanted butter. I wanted milk. And I couldn't find these three things. <laughs> How's that possible? Because nothing is real. You know, it's not bread from a bakery. It's not butter from um, real butter that's churned. It's Everything's artificial. And I was so sad. It was, you know, I, I don't even know how to explain how 
angry and sad I was at the same time that I am here eating rubbish in the world's best country. How is that possible? I come from a country where there's a billion people, where there's starvation, where people are dying of hunger. That exists. Yes, there's poverty. People are dying. But when people eat, they eat real food. They eat good food. They nourish their bodies with things that are real. That was not happening to me, for me, in Austin. And so in Austin, you got a degree in social work? Yes. Yeah, so my first degree was in economics. And uh, I realized very quickly that a career with that degree was not going to work out for me. I still had the fight in me. I still wanted justice. I still wanted equality. I still wanted to help people that didn't have a voice. And so I got a degree in social work and graduated and continued to practice um, helping children and families around Texas with their mental health issues. I think what... One of the things that excites me most about your story is the, or your life is not your story, um, is how you connected nutrition, farming, poverty, and um, to make a better world. Right. So, in order for people to be healthy, they need to eat good food. In order for people to be healthy, they need to be mentally fit. And there's a disconnect in our world, in our, there's a disconnect between, I'm trying to figure out the best way to explain this. Um, well, you used, you used um, the farms as a way to bring families together, for example, to have a conversation, which I think is a, a really wonderful practice. Right. So because there's this disconnect um, with the food that we're eating, um, Let's try to get people to get connected with our food. Let's bring them back to where our food comes from, whether it's in the fields or whether it's from a farm stand. Um, let's get families to work together to talk about the issues that are bothering them, um, to get children that are having a hard time functioning in school because of a mental illness that they may have or because of the environment that they come from or because of the lack of nourishment that is going into their bodies that's creating all these other problems let's get everyone together um, on a farm in a field and work and by doing this work by um, getting our hands dirty by learning about our food by default things just organically evolve and we learn about each other we learn about the things that make us um, function um, or not function and then those can be addressed. So farming therapy is something that evolved very early. Where is, is that? Is farming therapy a therapy, or is that a term that you use? Or I'm not familiar with that as a. So way using of, farming yeah. as a way of practicing therapy in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, is a thing. Okay, good. So, um, <laughs> you know, you use it with horses and equestrian therapy, right? So you can use coloring or play therapy or um, art therapy. Similarly, it can happen in any form. Um, farming as a way of education was something that um, was very, was very successful as well in communities where um, there was immense poverty hmm. and parents didn't have time to spend with their children and to sit with them and teach them to read because they were working um, in rural America, um, out in the fields, 
um, fixing stuff, working stuff, herding their cattle. Um, they came home, they were really tired, exhausted, barely could put food on their on their table and then wanted to go to sleep. So children didn't get that extra educational piece at home. And it also seemed that in that community, just talking about New Hampshire mm-hmm. for a minute where you lived and worked, that the kids who had parents who were farmers were not eating good food. Correct. Which must have been startling. Correct. So, um, you know, a good friend of mine um, in in New Hampshire would feed her children peanut butter and I mean peanut butter and fluff because they were too poor unable to afford right food didn't have access to food um, everything that they grew um, had to go to market so they could pay the bills so we're in a food desert uh, we're living in a life of poverty that propels this that um, Continuous, continues it over and over again. And that was shocking. So th- the solution at the time was to get these kids and st- have a farming education curriculum, have a food curriculum that would then maybe spark the interests of the parents and bring them to the table to participate, to teach, to learn, to get excited um, and change that habit. I, um, I know that... You spent a lot of time on the farms, but you also spent some time um, in the city. Did you? Did you? Wor- you worked in New York City for a time so, <laughs> at a completely different kind of farming, right? So um, there was a point in my life where, um, because of the person I was with, we were in the city, and um, you know they had um, a job in the finance world, and here I was a misfit, and I had no idea what what to do. Um, how how to participate in my farming practices or my therapeutic practices. And so I decided that I was going to start consulting. I was going to earn some money and I was going to consult and I was going to um, work with, with people that had rooftop gardens or had pieces of land that they wanted to grow food on because they didn't know what else to do with it or because um, it was the cool thing to do. <laughs> um, and it happened. It paid the bills and... Unfortunately, I ended up having all of this surplus surplus food because in the summertime when it was harvest time, the families were either vacationing in Europe or, um, you know, on the coast. And I had all this food and we would donate it or we would jar it, pickle it, save it for the families and be like, look, we have all these jars of food. I'd be <laughs> like, oh, great, great. Right. You, so you were um, working for consulting with um, some very fancy New York City families. And I, I'm just wondering, because you, you came from a background where you're, you know, your parents were educated, you, it's, you grew up with a, a nanny, and then you ended up um, choosing a very different life. What is it like living that disparity, you know, having come from great comfort and then seeing so much poverty and, you know, working and becoming part of that community? So it's really important for me to make sure the worlds that I touch, the people that are in my life um, are influenced and affected and changed in a way so they don't have that experience of poverty. Um, but, but the disparity of, of 
how you grew up. I mean, does it ever strike you? Like, I used to have a nanny. I ran in these fantastic fields. I traveled, you know, um, all around India and in comfort. And now, really, as you're um, showing me your nails, you know, you're proud of them because they they don't have dirt. You're, you, you know, you're completely cleaned up, but basically you're living in inside, you know, a farm and you're living a farmer's life. I like that. That's simple. That's very simple for me. I prefer that. Um, my father, he always tells me, he's like, you had to go across the world and go get an education to become a farmer. You grew up in an agrarian community, in an agrarian country. Why did you just not stay here and work? Why did you have to go <laughs> halfway around the world to then just become a farmer? Um, he just can't understand that. Uh-huh. You know, of course, now he respects it and appreciates it. But I like the simplicity of being in the dirt, um, of growing things, of having um, a non-complicated life. And do you feel that it's taken a lot of resolve to live this simple life? Like it's a fight to do it? No, because it comes naturally. Okay. It's something that's internal. It's something that I want to do. Um, the only thing that I have to battle is out of my control is the weather. Yes. <laughs> you know, I don't have to deal with um, people. I have to deal with animals and seeds and plants and water. And it's a different, it's, it's a simplicity that I appreciate and just gravitate towards and like very much. Uh, each person who comes on the show reads something that inspires them. I wonder if you could read us something that inspires you. Sure. I brought um, a few lines from Tolkien, and this was given to me. Um, I had I didn't know what Lord of the Rings was. I didn't hadn't read any of this. My brother gave this on a piece of paper to me. Um, the night I took my first flight out of India, never to return home. And um, I think it's significant to me because, A, he gave it to me, and in these words, um, it's kind of a gentle blessing, saying, go, make it happen, go do what you have to. Um, So it's, um, all that is gold does not glitter, not all those who wander are lost. The old that are strong do not wither. Deep roots are seldom reached by frost. And from the ashes, a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be the blade that was once broken. The crownless again shall be king. And at the end of it, he wrote, go make it happen. Oh, that's fantastic. And so it was kind of the brother, the boy that I hated growing up because he had more privilege than I did giving me that blessing, you know, go, go make it happen. It's also great because your parents did not give you that blessing. Right. So to have someone close to you within the family saying, I understand you. Yeah. And it's okay. Yeah. And then Lord of the Rings became the most popular <laughs> commercialized. <laughs> so let's talk about what you're doing uh, right this minute with Farah's Farm. And the restaurants that you're working with, it seems a very unusual relationship between Barteca and you. Can you describe that to me? Sure. Um, in my time in Connecticut, I've been, um, you know, farming for either myself or for other families. And I was selling to um, Barteca, to Barcelona Wine Bar. Um, the owner um, and founder lives in the town that I was farming, and I would call and text him and um, the chef 
about our uh, about our availability, our harvest for the week. And I did that year after year. And one winter, um, the culinary director reached out and said, hey, listen, we're growing, we're expanding. I'm hiring if you know anyone that's interested. And I'm uh-huh. like, hi, it's winter, <laughs> hello. <laughs> and, um, and so I, you know, I'd explained I've never worked in the restaurant world, um, but I'm willing to give it a go and try. And he's like, yeah, what's the worst that can happen? In the springtime, if you don't like it, go back to farming. And, you know, that was six years ago. So I wow. came on to help um, with sourcing, with uh, product finding, with being a resource to the multiple chefs that we had across different states to be able to be the person that they can call and say, hey, I'm looking for this unique product. Can you help me find it? Also, to be the link between our chefs and farmers across the country. We're in Georgia, we're in Massachusetts, in Connecticut, in D.C., Virginia. And how are we getting farm produce into our restaurants? Um, and so that being that link for my chefs, being a farmer, being able to pick up the phone and talk to farmers across the country and say, hey, what's going on? What are you harvesting? Um, So very quickly, my role evolved as the years went on um, to one that I that I absolutely love and kind of morphed into into a role that suits me. I was fortunate that the company, the people that I work with are very supportive of the farm. Um, They're supportive of the work that I do um, with the children um, that I work with and provide therapy to as well. We have uh, autistic children and children that have Down syndrome that are also on the pervasive disorder um, spectrum. So let's break this into two things. Sure. First, I'd love to know, how do you connect with the farmers? How do you you find them? I mean, if someone says, I need, you know, a purslane tomorrow, um, well, they won't say that, I guess. But uh, how do you find the farmers and then get it to the restaurants? And So it's... We farmers are a very intricate, connected group of people that know someone that know someone that know someone. Um, when we go into a new market, um, if I don't know anyone in that market, I will I will look at um, a farmer's market list and call a farmer and explain myself. I'll go meet them. I'll go do a farm visit, and one person t- you know connects you to another person. We. We love helping people, farmers. They love connecting the dots, being a resource. Um, and so I'll call my farmers and say, hey, I have a chef that's doing an event that needs, you know, whatever the item is. What's the strangest request you've ever gotten? And you, you think in the back of your mind, this is going to be really hard to pull off. Um, a head of tuna. A head of tuna? Okay. Yes. <laughs> it, um, so we had a group of chefs that went to Spain. And um, had a dish that was a piece of meat from inside the head of a tuna that ate just like um, like a ribeye. Uh-huh. And they came back and they said, we want this. We want this. I'm like, you know, okay, a head of tuna. Let's, <laughs> let's go get it. Now, one would think that it's really easy to get a head of tuna. But what happens is when you go fishing and, you, and it's processed on the boat, the head is thrown back because that's dead weight. So it's very hard to find a head of tuna, unless you know somebody who's actually going out and line catching and bringing it back. So we had people calling uh, fishermen up and down the East Coast, oh my God. <laughs> asking for tuna heads. 
That was the strangest one. And you succeeded, I'm sure. Yes, yes. I've, it was a lot of fun securing <laughs> five heads of tuna. Wow. So, okay. So, um, also on your farm, you continue your sort of the mental health practice. And that's where you were talking about working with autistic kids. Can you yes. tell us how you work with those kids? Yes. Um, there's a school um, in Southport called Giant Steps. And um, we work with them on a weekly basis. This is our seventh or ninth year in a row. Um, they come to the farm. They come to the garden that we have at Barcelona. Uh, our location in Fairfield has some raised beds that the kids work on. Um, we teach them how to grow their own food because these are the kids, when they grow up, are not going to have a job, possibly. Um, our community, our society, is not going to be able to provide an environment for them to be productive. And do you feel like a farm is a, a place for yes. this yes. population to be productive? I do, because you work, it's physical work, you work on your muscles, you work on your uh, fine and gross motor movements, you work on having um, a product at the end of it. We have had uh, three students graduate, and two of them have started their own farm that they live off of. It's a, Again, it's that simple life, it's the routine um, that works for the kids that then grow up to be adults and it's the same activity day in and day out um, that is actually very soothing and very therapeutic um, and so yeah we have these kids come out and learn and grow with us really like literally grow food and grow with us and graduate out of the program that's must be in, incredibly rewarding I, it is rewarding it is but what's fascinating to me is that People around me, Barteca, Barcelona, our servers, our chefs, they all support this. In the wintertime when there's snow on the ground and the kids can't, um, you know, do something outside, the kids come into the restaurant and learn things at the restaurant level, whether it's cracking eggs or juicing stuff for the bar, um, learning how to do roll-ups for napkins and working on those movements um, they're just learning a skill that at some point when they do graduate school, they could go out and um, find employment. So let's talk about the number of farms that you work with, because you call yourself a satellite farmer, which I, I've, as I think I said, I love that term. And I'd like to know how you do that. Um, finding land in Fairfield County, where I'm from, uh, where I live, is very hard um, it's very expensive to buy. I cannot afford it. So I work with families um, that have extra land, excess land, that are either landscaped or have lawns, and um, they want to have uh, a more productive use of their land. So I have a handshake agreement with them, and they give me a piece of land, and I turn the soil with a battalion of volunteers <laughs> who I'm so grateful for, um, and we end up growing food. That ends up uh, going back to the family as a repayment for their land that gets sold to restaurants that sometimes goes to the local market in Wilton um, that goes to the food bank that goes to the women's shelter um, and that gets jarred and pickled for me to eat in the wintertime. <laughs> um, you put up a lot of foods, I guess. It's something that, that is a holdover from your childhood and things that you've learned all along the way. Yes, yeah, so of course in India with the sun, there is a lot of drying practices. Everyone dries everything. 
right? You also have a lot of fermentation. You have a lot of pickling, um, natural pickling, not like heating pickling. You just put things in a jar and you sit it out and it's pickled in the sun. So I learned all of that growing up. In various points of my life, there were various women from different parts of India being so vast that taught me different techniques, um, which was huge to learn that, to absorb that. But then I learned the American way in Shelby, Ohio. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I ended up in Ohio, uh, again, because I followed my the love of my life from Texas to Ohio, and I was introduced to Gary and Shirley Burr, who were homesteaders. And this concept of homesteading in America was awesome. I was like, <laughs> yes, I've, I've finally found what I've been looking for. And they lived outside of Mansfield in this little tiny town and worked at the glass factory, but they grew everything and ate off their land. And so I spent some time with them, and their daughter and me were friends, and I learned how, how, how we can in America. Um, and it was, it's a little different. Um, and I absolutely was thrilled to spend some, a summer there and learn this whole process. Right. Well... I, I know that you were inspired by many of the, the women uh, across India. Would you nominate any of them for the Food Hall of Dames? There's this one lady. Um, she was in the, in the foothills of um, the Deccan Plateau, where I grew up and spent a lot of time. And she was the wife of the caretaker of our land. She was this solid, stern, hard lady her eyes were just you she looks at you and you're like oh boy um she was a wealth of knowledge and she walked around with me and taught me a lot not only about growing and preserving and farming but also about life and right and wrong um I spent some you know some time with her and um and how did how did she impart that was that just you know in in the course of doing it's all about learning learning by doing um, through stories, through narrations of, you know... Do you remember any of her stories? Oh, God. I, uh, no. <laughs> it's too <laughs> no. long ago. It's, well, no, they, it's, it's in my heart. It's in my head. It's hard to, hard to... I don't know. I'm not good at thinking on the spot. But she's always with me. Sometimes the greatest guide is this is the spiritual one. It's, it's not that you remember a specific thing, but a feeling and a way of, of being. I think that I've lived most of my life with that feeling, that spiritual guide. A lot of my decisions have been made because they feel right, not because it makes logical sense. Um, yeah. What does it take, do you think, to become the farmer that you are? On this show, I, I try to give people inspiration for something that they might never have thought of doing, but actually could be the key to their journey. I think the thing that drives me is not to be fearful, um, to go with your heart, to follow what you believe is true inside of you. Um, for me, that was farming. For me, that was a simple way of life. And really nothing can go wrong. If you're true to yourself and you are true to your heart, what's going to happen? <laughs> Joy will follow yeah yeah and that 
everyone, is our show for today. You've been listening to Speaking Proudly. This is Dana Cowan, and my guest was Farah Masani. Um, thank you to my engineer, David Tatashore. And for all of you out there, you can follow me at FW Scout or at Speaking Broadly. And Far, do you ha- are you on social media? Do you have time with the farming life to actually post on Instagram? Or I don't, but I do have <laughs> Farah's farm on Instagram. That you know, I the last post I think I was of ramps and fiddleheads that I was foraging. Okay, it's spring, so it we is, we yeah. know it. Uh, it couldn't have been that long ago. Yeah. So check out Farah's farm. And as always. If you have a topic you want to hear me address um, or feedback of any kind, please reach out. You can DM me on Insta. And great to have you listening, and we'll be back next week. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.